Hi, welcome to Mobile Couch. This is a show where we talk about all kinds of mobile development from iOS to Android and beyond, I guess. This show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Hi. And Ben Trengrove. Hello. And myself, Jelly, aka Daniel Farrelly. Today, we have the illustrious Mark Edwards. Hello. How are you, Mark? I'm, I'm going very well. You're a designer by trade. Mostly, yeah. And yet you also, you also are known for being the, the guy from uh, Bajango. Yeah, yeah. And you guys like obviously create a whole bunch of apps um, from things like uh, iStat to uh, your upcoming Scala project. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you like what sort of um, process you guys go through? Because I'm sure I'm assuming there's other guys, because I but I don't know who they are. So, can you tell us a little bit about the process that you guys go through when you bring an app, like when you create an app? Yeah, sure. So, uh, just to just let you know, there's sort of roughly five of us right now. Um, I'm, I'm usually the spokesperson of of the company. I'm also um, also the the founder and. Yes, yeah, so it's not just me. <laughs> I, I really wish I was that good, but I, I work with some very, <laughs> very smart people. In terms of process, we're we're a small indie developer, so um, our, our main sort of dev team is kind of two, but it's sort of expanded with Scala and, and a few other things we've got going on. We've we've been very fortunate to have some help from friends in the industry. Our process is it's probably like a lot of indie developers. You come up with an idea, you strap on your your chaps and pull out your your gunslinger and your you know, you just act like a cowboy until it's done. I, I, I don't think there's really anything that's um, strict, or, or, or you know, there's, there's no there's no strict process when when we're building things. I, I guess we we certainly have things that we we like doing. Like obviously, anyone who's read our well, my, my articles on Bajango.com, um, I've I've got certain workflows that I like sticking to for for design process and and building assets and all that kind of stuff. And we um, we're trying to we're trying to be a little bit smarter and. <laughs> you know, make better use of stuff like version control, but we're just we're just really we're winging it, winging it. Yep, nice. I, I'm kind of also interested in process, and I guess um, you know, my background is is really much focused on development rather than design. Often I'll work on with designers on projects, um, but I'm kind of interested in how you guys blend the two, right? So when you're starting off with a new idea or um you know, just starting to work on a project. Um, is it very much sort of design driven? You start with a clear picture of how you want it to look and the sort of interactions you want people to have and then uh, take it from there? Or do you sort of develop sort of basic prototypes and then add some visuals on top of that? Or is that a mixture? Okay. So I know I know I just said that we don't actually have a process, <laughs> but, but now you've asked a very specific question. I've got a very specific answer. We certainly consider both engineering and design to be equal parts of the product and both very, very important. And obviously the way something looks determines the way something is built quite often, um, especially with modern software where there might be roughly half of the engineering time is, is actually UI code. Um, so we definitely discuss as much upfront as possible and we um, we really try and collaborate right from the very, 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 very start. So we've got... Um, aligned motivation, aligned goals. Um, I'll, I'll certainly show rough, really, really ugly, rough um, layouts and mockups to to whoever I'm working with, and and we we try again because we're we're an indie developer, we're very small. I just I don't I don't like the idea of iterating too much when you get to the point where you're writing 
um, final code. I, I think you should really try and do as much work up front when uh, basically we went, went to push everything, all the, the decision making, um, and so that if you do that when you're working in a framework that's that's as easy to change as possible. So that might be drawing scribbles because it's, it's really easy to change stuff if you just need to you know change a couple of lines on a piece of paper. That's, that's obviously there's no no engineering work in that. And the same thing with our um, when we get to final mockups, we try and make as many changes as possible and, until we get to the point we are where we are cutting up final assets for code. And and then we we build and tr- really try to not mess around with things too much, which I guess means you don't get to experiment with with certain aspects of development. But it also means it's it's quite a it's quite a quick and very linear process, which which I really like. Um, and the other thing we've been doing is because of the way uh, we we build image assets for for um, our applications, we can typically re-export tens of you know or, or more um of times of complete asset sets which means i can we can have a project sitting on github or wherever and um i can actually be iterating the design without the program and needing to touch anything unless you know we actually change an asset size or i mess something up um but that's, no, that's, that's pretty been really cool yeah that's been really really good because in fact i've just even i mean <laughs> i'm I'm not an Objective-C programmer at all, but it's pretty easy to go in and find where all the colors are located, especially if you've got a nice developer who's grouped them all together with, um, uh, you know, constants in a nice, neat file. So you can go in and change gradient colors and everything else. So that's, yeah. that's, I've actually that's heard, really cool too. heard a few people take that sort of approach. I think, um, is it called QBranch, the people that Group has been working with on Vespa? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Brent, I think Brent Simmons pulled all that stuff out into a playlist. Um, yeah, so that there was yeah. sort of a settings file that could be easily changed. And I think there are also a couple of frameworks that look at trying to use something like akin to CSS to style an app. You know, so that it's actually the presentation information somewhat separate from the the code that's around the app's functionality. So it's easier to change in one spot. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm all for that, except. The the funny thing, I mean, it, it depends on the relationship and 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 who's who's likely to be changing that stuff. I mean, that there's probably some very sane reasons why you wouldn't want people near your code or repository if they're you know inclined to break things or it's you know in a situation where maybe um, it's not that you don't trust them, but it's sort of you know you obviously got to be quite careful with source code. Um, yeah. But yeah, now in, in, in our situation, there's just there's no benefit in having it as a, as a plist because you're editing a text file or you're editing a text file because <laughs> that's what yeah, the code exactly. is. So it's, of course, yeah, of course. I've had um, examples of doing things like that where actually with certain projects it was around the sound design, and sound designers needed to be able to hear what their sounds sounded like in the app, um, and then tweak it and try it again and tweak it and try it again, um, and so the the, the app eventually had a way of loading sounds remotely so you know the binary shipping app you could actually um have a build of it that you could just stick new sounds in without having to change the source code and do a build at all cool that's that's a good that's pretty cool i've done similar things with other like where it's um settings that are about how long things should take or how long transitions should take or what um sort of parameters to use i'm actually exposing them in the settings app on on ios and letting people sort of tweak it um during development um and then before the the project finishes sort of then baking those sort of final values into the app so it looks nice i keep a um i keep a secret settings section of my like in-app settings so that i can tweak all that sort of stuff 
um, it doesn't take obviously it doesn't take effect when I'm actually you know when when I'm when the build app is built, but it means that I can kind of tweak things and um and make sure that everything is running and looks the way that I want it to. Um, I can and as a bonus, I can use that sort of um, setup to to basically make um uh, add debug stuff, so I can you know have I can turn on like all my logging and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. I usually find that that's a good way of of being able to tweak stuff. Nice. And um, it's yeah. it's really nice to be able to make changes at runtime, right? It's all about I guess trying to shorten that feedback loop between changing yeah. a setting and seeing what that change feels like or looks like or sounds like. So, you know, if you have to go back to change the source code and recompile and build and whatever, it can be time consuming and, yeah, you feel a little bit disconnected from it. But if there's a way of actually changing it at runtime, I think tools like Reveal are really cool for that too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you're right. It's all about closing that loop up so you can spin as fast as possible. And wouldn't it be awesome if um, Apple included a way to get debug settings in like uh, Notification Center? So you can just pull that down and tweak some stuff and flip it back up and have that all react real time rather than having to jump out and even go into the settings app or something yeah it'd be awesome mm. pretty cool yeah and that's that's part of the reason why i include it in app I, I don't really use the settings app for any of that sort of stuff um and then as a bonus it means that i can add things like buttons to clear caches and all that sort of stuff which is um which can be useful we used to do um we used to do heaps of this stuff at shiny things so we exposed pretty much everything to the designers um the designer could actually, so we taught them all how to use Git and we wrote a whole engine so they could pretty much make the entire app without a programmer. So we, we used to make storybook apps. We still do. I, when I worked there, we did. Um, and they would be pages of interactive sort of things and then there would be an actual game. So the developer would still have to do the game, but a designer could go through and make an entire book as long as there weren't any games in it without any code at all. Um, they export from Flash. We wrote a Flash converter that lays out the whole screen automatically. And it's, it's so much better then because it avoids the whole, oh, let's move this up a pixel. Let's move this left pixel out. Let's rebuild. And then you wait for it to build. And then it doesn't look right. So we move that back. So they can do all that themselves without it taking the developer's time. Yeah. And it also means that I think like in, in, in a situation where you have like your build number automatically iterating, you kind of behooves you. <sighs> I can't believe I used that word. It behooves you to. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. That's a nice word. It, it kind of behooves you to, uh, to you know, to not, uh, m- not make that number, you know, too high. You want to keep, you want to keep that down and stop yourself from going through that process because it is time consuming and it adds every single time you build the app, it adds, you know, a few seconds and a few seconds when you're building it like, you know, three thousand times. Um, which you know is what Gifrapt has you know current build number is set at. That's like a long time. Hey, it could be it could be minutes if Xcode can't handle your scale. You know, yeah. Really could be. <laughs> or you know, it could be even longer if it you know if it actually ends up being like a you know you, you end up with a with an error and you have to go back and fix it or tweak something. And yeah, I, I think having that sort of in app way of manipulating things is is. And, and being able to test, like having a way to test stuff without having to go through a build process is really useful. Really useful. Yeah, definitely. Can you imagine what it would be like if there was stuff like you could actually make changes on the device at runtime to an app's UI? Like, you know, I'm imagining being able to touch uh, a shape that you're you know, drawing programmatically uh, and have a little pop-up appear and be able to change the color and the radius and the, you know, border width and the 
doesn't, doesn't reveal do that. Reveal does yeah. that. So reveal does it on, on the Mac, right? Yeah. Which is cool. Um, but I'm imagining it on iOS as well. There's a, there's an idea for the reveal guys being able doesn't to. It, um, doesn't it send the changes back? I, I, yeah, I, I thought it. I thought yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Sorry, I'm just uh, you know imagining a touch interface to reveal. I guess. Oh, oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, to yeah, touch yeah. a yeah. running app on my iPad and just get a sort of um you know like equivalent to WebKit inspector, you know, in the browser, have it actually appear on the same device that my app's running on, and give me um runtime things that I can change. Yeah, that could be built into like the reveal framework that gets put into the app when you. There you go. A free idea. There you go. I got lots of those, but, you know, it's all about executing them, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds so easy when I'm we just talk about it. But see, here's the thing. Like, it's a lot easier for them to implement it if they decide to go that way than it is for you to build, like, a reveal competitor. Right. Yeah, you know, And then go through all that process yourself. So, it's better to hand the idea to somebody that can do it. There you go. I'll pass it on. Hey, Ben, is your mic on? You sound very quiet. Do I? He keeps not talking into the mic. No, I'm oh, an amateur. He's falling asleep, is he? Yeah, it's he's, too late. He's just not used to this mic. Yeah. Sorry. Because <laughs> he's he's talking, he's he's using the mic that Jake normally uses and um, because otherwise I have to set up the third mic there and um, and he's not used to it. He gets excited. I think I think him being in the armchair is, it gets him excited. Yeah, I got promoted, but I'm not, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm never going to get that chair back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mark. This is this yeah. is completely, completely useless derailed. to you. That's right. So you guys all in the same room. We typically are normally um, because Not because tonight. of um, Jake's uh, Jake's uh, sudden schedule change. We've had to uh, Skype Jake in, but normally we we meet in my offices, cool. um, awesome. my office, and record and record there, yeah, which is where good. me and Ben are right now. Yes. You mean that's not how you record iterate? Uh, well. Renee's in Montreal and Seth's in New Jersey. <laughs> Clearly, that would, that would be so, challenging, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've, yeah, we, we tend to find people on weird time zones. Yeah. So it's, um, no, <laughs> usually they're at weird times of the day and involving many different parts of the world. Does that mean that your, your schedule for recording changes a lot? Um, I guess because a lot of the people are based in the US. We, we do have a pretty fixed time, but, um, we've had a couple that have been really weird. So they might, I think one of them was Russia or, you know, anywhere, anywhere in, um, that part of Europe means we sort of straddle the globe on all parts. And so you really can't find a time that's comfortable for everyone. Yeah. Have you ever done like a recording in the middle of the night? Yeah. We've done a few that have been really early or really late. Yep. Yeah. Done plenty that are 2am. There's not much you Whoa. can do about it. Aye. That's commitment. I'd- that is commitment. We haven't had to do that yet. I and, hope um, we never I'm do. Very, I'm very glad that we have it. <laughs> Gives me a whole new respect for Iterate, which I love, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Hey, um, I've got another question for you, guys, taking us back to sort of the interface between design and development. How do you approach the task of uh, designing and, and then implementing um, sort of animations and and touch interactions where they, where it's not just about uh, static pixels on screen about something that looks a particular way at a particular point in time but it's about how things change over time and how they respond to touch and in that uh, are there particular tools you use or particular processes you use to help that because um, that's something i feel like we're going to need to do more and more of um recently i've been messing with uh ui kit dynamics a bit and i think that sort of design is I guess, kind of the new frontier of design. It's where more of our focus will be as developers and designers. Um, and I'm not quite sure that the tools are there to support it yet. I, I definitely don't think the tools are there yet. I, I guess there's a few 
a few good answers. Uh, we, we use we use hype a lot for just animation prototyping. Um, other times I'll just make animated GIFs in Photoshop. Um, for the, that is actually the the one area where we do experiment a little bit because, like you said, there's no tools. You can't just make something and then and then know what the code's going to be. Um, so if we do play around, that's that's what we will play around with. The other thing is, I, I, as much as iOS 7 and it, it is the new frontier and yes, some of that stuff is, is quite new and quite difficult to get right. I still feel like most, certainly most software, games are different, but most software, um, as in applications are, are still very much static screens. Even, even if you take the most animated, most UI dynamics using whatever, it's still generally stuff you should be able to mock up as static screens and then, um, hand off to someone and then kind of work it out for the, the, the final pieces, even stuff like, you know, Facebook, the chat heads, all that stuff. I'm, I know it's great to be able to mock it up and have something that's near finished product that looks like finished product, even though it's not the right code underneath. But I, I think you, you don't want to end up building an entire tool chain. And I'm, I'm not, not necessarily against using Quartz Composer and other things like that, but it seems like if you take someone who's not necessarily a good programmer, i.e. a designer, and they spend a whole bunch of time hooking something up using something that isn't code to then do the job of code. And then a developer has to go and rebuild the entire thing. Um, I'd almost just prefer to work with the developer at the start and just, just build the thing properly. And then you can tweak yeah. it from there if that's, if that's what you have to do it, if it is something you have to experiment with. Yeah, I think, I think sort of speaking as a developer, I think that makes sense. Like I quite enjoy the process of um, work collaborating with a designer on that side of an app as well like um you know having a go at proposing an animation or a transition or some sort of interaction and saying you know this is what i can do easily in code what do you think how does that fit with what you had in mind for visuals and and then being able to sort of iterate back and forth yeah i guess from my perspective as a developer i'd i'd love being involved in projects as early as possible um to be able to i guess i'm i'm a developer who has opinions about design as well i quite i quite like to think that I can contribute in that area, although probably the designers I've worked with will tell you otherwise. I, th- I think it's a really good thing. And I, I think that's, it's, it's great working with people, with developers who have some design experience and designers who have some development experience. It doesn't mean you actually have to, you know, the designer doesn't have to write the code and the developer doesn't have to design, but it's, it's great to be able to second guess what might be good. And um, there's been plenty of situations when I've been working with, with people and they've just, they've done something that, um, wasn't necessarily expected or obvious, but it was far better. And it wasn't sort of, you know, within what you would consider to be their wheelhouse. And that's, that's awesome. That's really good. Hmm. Yeah. I always find that, um, like when I'm working with, uh, I work well, I work a lot with design agencies. And, um, so I, I do a lot of development work for, for them. Um, because, well, they're design agencies. They don't need me to do any design for them. And uh, I find that they, the designers who have a little bit of a handle on like development side of things um, or that are, you know, are keen to learn about that stuff typically create better designs and f- designs that are much more, I guess, functional um, because it, it's just so much it's so much easier for them to grasp, well, okay, I can do this I, or I can do that as opposed to um, to just kind of, okay, well, here's what I think and then having to do that back and forth. Again, it's all about, you know, I guess you, you should, uh, as much as possible, if you can if you can find a way within your uh, wheelhouse to reduce that, it's um, it's always beneficial. It's certainly smart to know 
which decisions will impact performance or just execution time or um, yeah. as in time to, time to build something. And it's it means you can also pick your battles. And, and I also think it, it, it can help earn respect with the developer you're working for. If, you, if, you, if, you, if you're working on something and it's like, well, I know there's, there's two ways we could do this. One of them will cause you many weeks of pain and the other one is easy. <laughs> And it's not something that's critical to the the um the app. And there's some other way we could spend that time doing something that really matters. Um, then I think I think those decisions are best made informed. And so obviously the the more experience you have, the the better. Mm. Yeah, it's so nice working with a designer who actually knows that kind of stuff, especially what's actually possible. Like the worst is when you get a design and you just have to tell them. I actually cannot do that. Even if I spent months on it, it would be impossible. Yeah. And yeah. I've had I've had um designs handed to me before that I've had to completely rework. Well, I mean it's no it's no walk in the park for me. I mean I I I do design as well as development. So, I mean I if anybody's going to be able to do it then sure, I can do it. Um but I mean, it takes time, and it means that the project takes longer, and uh, it's never a, it's it's never a good feeling because then you, I'm basically you know telling the designer that their work is crap, and I don't like my work being you know debased like that, so I don't like doing that to other people, and I, I find it's a lot easier, just a lot easier if if you know everybody has kind of even just a small grasp on what the other people in the same team can can do and what is possible and that sort of thing. This conversation's taken me back to my youth. But the very first job I had after leaving high school before I went to uni was as a pre-press graphic artist. So not so much a designer in terms of creative coming up with designs, but a bit more of a technician in terms of taking other people's designs and um, changing them in whatever ways was necessary so that they could be printed in different ways mainly for the packaging industry. And the thing that like struck me then was designers who had an understanding of the technology that was going to be used to implement their design were always producing consistently better work. And it was so, unfortunately, so common to get designs from people that didn't have any regard for the technology that was going to be used to to implement it, you know, down to the thing Mm. like, um, you know, one of the forms of packaging uh, we'd print stuff on was cardboard cartons, which I think had 60 dots per inch was the, the best you could do using cardboard carton printing technology back then. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, get designs that had this really, really complex sort of gradient where by the time you convert it to 60 points per inch, you get like half a dot in, you know, one area to, to give the sort of detail they're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of amazes me that this is all still applicable, right? That That if you understand the technology, you know, native mobile phone technology or web technology or whatever the technology or designs being implemented in. And I think it goes both ways as well. Sometimes I find I'm working with designers who haven't realized that um, something is possible. Like, you know, I think you're talking about get a design that, that might be really hard to execute. Um, I've had the opposite where sometimes people will say, say oh, I actually hadn't considered that because I assumed it was going to be too difficult. Um Whereas it can be sometimes on iOS amazing how much you can do quite easily, quite simply with a couple of lines of code. Yeah, see, on the on the flip side of that, I'm, the times I think developers don't necessarily like me is when I go hunting around um, the 
uh, Apple dev documents and <laughs> it's like don't tell me this can't be done because <laughs> here's the I've code seen, I've, I've, I've seen um i've seen stack overflow pages you know this yeah <laughs> you're wrong you're wrong yeah uh, it can be done and you'll do it you'll like it yeah i, I, yeah. I definitely know what you mean jake especially when it comes because I, I, I did all the pre stuff too and all the trapping and other stuff it's really yeah it's, exactly I, I think yeah i think this software is exactly the same and it's it's the same where you have to you have to have a really firm technical grasp, and I think, sure, there's a place for people who are sort of more artistic and less technical. But I, I think if you're, if if you're trying to build software, you kind of you have to, you really do have to have some understanding. You don't have to be able to code, but you have to have some some pretty deep understanding of what is what is possible and what's not. Hmm. And this is probably a good situation in which um in which storyboards are useful and jake will love me for saying that <laughs> um because i, I mean i just can't I, believe you're bringing them up again <laughs> i don't like storyboards i i despise them but then at the same time i do all the work the apps that i work on typically i'm doing all the work myself um and so you know i don't use them but obviously in a situation where you've got a developer and a designer working together they're they're a lot more beneficial because the designer can kind of work in an environment that is well, you know, somewhat native to them. Um, do you, do you, have, have you done much work with storyboards at all, Mark? Uh, none at all. I've done a lot of zip editing, but not, not really anything to do with storyboards. Um, I, I don't know what, not, not specifically sure why, but um, a lot of the stuff we've, we've, we've done seems to be zip and auto layout based. So that's, that's kind of, kind of where it is. I don't, I don't even necessarily know how storyboards fit into that. They, they're a higher level, aren't they? They're, yeah, Usually. you can have you can basically have one storyboard that could have all of the views if your app in it. If you wanted to, it could be a monolithic sort of file that has, I guess, um, you know, it represents each each view within your app and the navigation between them. Um, and you can pull individual views out into a zip uh, if you need to, or you could do it all in a single storyboard file. But I think the concept's the same, right? It's having a visual editor, and you know, back in the day, mm. Interface Builder was a separate app, right? There was, I think, this idea that the developers who were more focused on code would use Project Builder, and the designer types who are more focused on the visuals would use Interface Builder, and you know, potentially those different people performing those different roles could have those different tools. It was interesting when Apple decided to integrate them. That was that a little bit of a acknowledgement that perhaps it is a technical enough task that you do need an understanding of the build process and code to be able to edit zibs it's probably also an acknowledgement of the fact that they've got a lot more indie developers working for them like working on apps for their platforms now um you know a lot more people are doing apps by themselves yeah and so being able to you know use the one app instead of two to get a get like you know one overall task done is um much more handy than having to have you know multiple things going on all over the place. Yeah, sure. Hey, um, Mark, are you familiar at all with how other platforms approach this? Like, um, I, I'm vaguely familiar with um Microsoft's technologies and uh, Windows Presentation Foundation, which has a sort of XML declarative based approach to interface sort of specification and a set of tools designers potentially could use to work on interfaces have you come across them i think one was called blend i i haven't done a whole lot of windows work but we've certainly we've we've done a little bit on android again that was mostly built by the shifty jelly guys anyway so um and the other issue is the kind of interfaces we usually design are fairly custom so even even interface builder doesn't 
really hold up that well because um although maybe i think this is changing anyway but it seems like you can't really get a good preview of a zip if you've got all custom views it's just all you send yeah, up with you just bunch. get white white rectangles yeah that's yeah. why i don't use them so so we've um we've certainly been in we've, we've tried it where i'd be editing a zip and it'd be completely custom so all you get is a boxes everywhere and that's it you can't actually see what's going on and it would yep. essentially mean i'd have to take a screenshot of the running app measure everything out in photoshop and then just go into interface builder and nudge it all knowing how far it was was going to go so it didn't really nudge, nudge the sort of white boxes yeah yeah so it didn't really save yeah. us any time and it was actually kind of a headache um yeah i just i just had a thought maybe that's why ios 7 is so much white white and plain boxes everywhere so that it matches interface builder <laughs> could be Maybe. Hey, that's a great segue because it was one of the things that was on my list to talk to Mark about is um, I listened to have with great interest to all the discussions you guys have had on Iterate um, about iOS 7, uh, both back when it was first introduced and, and since. And I'm kind of wondering how you feel about it now. I guess we've all been living with it for about six months, a little over six months. You know, has your opinion changed from your initial impression? Um, what, you know, what, what do you think? Are its strengths and weaknesses, and where do you think it could go in the future? I I think my opinion's fairly similar to to maybe not the initial reaction. <laughs> maybe after I had a couple of days to calm down, um, I I still think there's some stuff that's incredibly stupid, like frameless buttons, text buttons rather than glyphs. You know, the status bar combined with the nav bar, while sometimes it looks good, is a real nightmare to work with, and I think that's. Mm. That's taken something that used to be almost part of the hardware, and it's pushed it into the. It's, it used to be at the OS in the OS space, and now it's in the application space. And I think that's that was a really poor decision. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's really cool in iOS seven, certainly on the the engineering level. Design wise, I mean, I like. I think it was the right timing, and I think it's a nice, fresh approach. And there's certainly some really, really cool stuff in iOS seven. And you're talking about UI dynamics before. That's all that stuff's amazing and is, is a really welcome addition. But um, it's good to see that initially a lot of third-party applications looked like pure iOS 7 stock UI. Um, you know, just just choose a color for the nav bar and be done with it. The rest is white. Whereas now it seems like a lot of personality is creeping back into third-party apps, which is which is good. Which I, I think is where we were with iOS 6 anyway, nothing really looked like a stock iOS 6 app. Right. And I, I think I think that um I think that that's exactly the same sort of uh, process that we went through with iOS 6, right? Because it, at the beginning a lot of the apps just looked like you know iOS apps. They all had the same look and feel. And many of the apps that came out that people were, you know, that a lot of indie developers were pushing out were just stock apps with maybe some colors changed and you know, even some of the bigger apps. I think my some of the banking apps, you know, had not that they're a you know great example of you know solid app making, but they they had you know some basic basic customization like colors, and um, you know we went through this process where it kind of started there and went to eventually you know where each app ended up with its own personality, and I think we're I think we're heading that direction as well um, with iOS seven. It's just you know it's a slow process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Tweety looked like the settings app. When it was launched, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Pins, it did. stripes and all. So it was just, it was, it was very much the, the Twitter app that Apple could have made because, well, I pinstripes. Remember pinstripes? I do. 
<laughs> I, I remember the pinstripes back in Mac OS 10 in the first the first beta version of the first version of OS 10. They were very vibrant and bright. That's right. We'll be having the same conversation in five years' time, except it'll be, remember Blur? Yeah. And really yeah. skinny text. Remember skinny text? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and UIKit dynamics. Actually, about the dynamics, um, I was feeling guilty uh, messing with them today because um, I just am worried that it could become one of those things that everyone rushes to do because it's so cool and new. And then very quickly you look at an app that has that in there and you think, sort of, oh, that's dated. That's kind of... Um, I don't know. Do you think that there is an appropriate way to use them? Um, do you think it's something that should be in every iOS 7 app or in some? Or, you know, how would you approach when to to use those sorts of physics-based techniques and when not to? Uh, well, I guess anything worth doing is worth overdoing, right? <laughs> right. Excellent, because that's the approach I was taking. <laughs> I, I, I think it's always... Uh, so I, I guess what you want to do is if you want to stay on the bleeding edge, what you want to do is go in there, overuse it, become an expert with it. And so you end up forming taste and knowing when it's appropriate and when it's not. So I think it's fine going in there and just having some fun and yeah, creating something that will probably look dated, but then hopefully you can pull it back before anyone notices. (laughs) Yeah, cool. Uh, I like that. So I'm all for that. Although having said that, we haven't, I don't think we've used UI Dynamics once. Um, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the software we make isn't really. Um, and this is probably a very negative thing to say, but a lot of our software isn't really fun. It's not. Um, it doesn't have. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily delightful, and and I think that's almost intentional. Where we're trying. To, I mean, I, you guys asked me about Scala before the show. We've we've actually pulled a lot of animation out of Scala because. Um, it's a tool that I want to be very much a production tool for professionals and I, I don't like waiting, <laughs> so yeah, right. I'd, I'd rather have it, especially, especially if you know the person's going to be driving the, the tool via keyboard shortcuts and they're, they're going to be bashing on their keyboard at whatever it is, you know, 50, 60 words per minute or hitting shortcuts really quickly. Um, you, you don't want something to, to hold them back. So I think it really depends. Again, it's, yeah. it's what's appropriate. You want it to get and, out of the way and let you get on with what you're wanting to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also sort of when, you know, given the context, there might be something that gets done. If it's something you expect people to use for 12 hours a day and there's a certain action that might get used two or 300 times a day or more, obviously that's not a good candidate for, um, a, you know, five-second animation with sparkles flying off it. Um, that'll probably annoy them, but you know maybe on the first launch, if you did something cool or whatever, you know that that seems more appropriate. You, you mean like a video, in-app video with audio when you first launch, to sort of welcome <laughs> you to the new app. So where you getting it? Paper took a long time to download, didn't it? <laughs> is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I thought, yeah, really. Very, very slick app. Amazing stuff. Oh, it is. Actually, while um, we're having this conversation, I was just playing with some of the gestures in it because it's got that sort of playfulness that you were describing, just like flicking those cards up and down and unfolding sections. And um, it does. It it has that sense of fun. Um, So I think there's certainly a lot in there that's that's lovely. But, yeah, that launch video sort of, yeah. I I try and talk um, clients out of wanting to have branded uh, default launch images. Um. So I don't know, you know, basically 
the app has to have an image when it launches, uh, default.png. Um, and so often people want to use that as an opportunity to brand the app and have a, you know, whilst you're watching it load, um, see our logo. Um, and I think more, most of the time now I just give in because I can kind of understand it is important to communicate to a user which app you've just launched and to sort of reinforce that. Um, but you know, Apple's original idea there was that the, the static image that was shown whilst an app was launching should match as closely as possible the user interface of the app when it's running to give the kind of illusion that it's launched before it actually has to make it feel like the operating system is faster and, and more seamless. Um, and yeah, I struggle with sort of convincing people of the merits of that and sort of say, let's not stick a logo there. Let's, you know, actually make it look like the initial screen that you're going to want to interact with so that people feel like they can get started using it straight away. Um, I can't, yeah, really imagine wanting to stick in a long animated video introduction. Does anybody actually still use them for that that purpose I don't think anymore? so, but I like it. I mean, the calculator app is my perfect example when I'm having this conversation with people. If you launch the calculator app, the launch image is the calculator screen, right? And the only difference between the static launch image and the app once it's running is that when it's running, the screen, the kind of pseudo LCD screen is lit up and has a zero in it or the last number you typed in it. Whereas um, the static image has, in fact, all of Apple's apps do it. Yeah, the stocks app's a good example. Yeah, the well, the Apple's apps obviously they they do it. But does any do, what I mean is it does does anybody outside of Apple use it? For no, that I think pretty much the accepted practice now is to brand your app when it launches, and I still uh, I'm trying to resist it. Do you do you ever take and Mark? It, of of course, apps only take like half a second or less to launch on a new new iOS device anyway. And with the way um, apps running in the background, where the way they just get suspended. If they're still in RAM, then, you know, you actually don't see that default dot ping very often anyway. Except so. when you oh. suspend an app when the device is in one orientation and then you change the orientation of your device and then switch back hey, to it in the go. second orientation. Didn't know that. Then that's, you get the, the well spotted. default PNG of the other orientation, which... Yeah, I, I thought you could um, provide like a dynamic, like a dynamically created version of that. Hey. From within the app I didn't itself. know that. You can now? I don't know. I I I'd have to maybe I maybe I should actually do some research before saying something like that on you know on a show. Let's follow <laughs> up next week. I, I remember reading something. I I know there was discussion a long time ago where Apple were doing that themselves, but I thought it was private. Yeah, I certainly am so used to running into this that weird edge case, and and I've certainly been able to recreate it with a bunch of apps, and that is where it's a little bit jarring. So if you're you know particularly on an iPad where you might be using the multi-touch gestures to switch between apps and. I find myself reorienting my iPad a lot more than I do my iPhone. Pretty much I use my iPhone in portrait most of the time. But on the iPad, I, I quite often run into that where I'm switching back to an app I was just in. And instead of seeing something that looks like where I left it, I kind of feel like it's launching again because I've got that branded default PNG coming up because of, yeah, I'd suspended it in one orientation, rotated my device and then resumed back in the other orientation. Anyway, maybe that's just me and I'm being fastidious. I will have to look into whether or not that's that is now possible and um mention it on the next show's follow up. Sounds good. Mm. Mm. So, Mark, um I have to be honest, I've got to use this opportunity to ask you more about Scala because look, I mean Scala is something that you guys are working on and we've and um have been you know, semi semi quiet about. Um, while at the same time, you know, every everybody 
who knows who you guys are has obviously um, you know heard that you guys are bringing it out. Um, just and for those who don't, can you give give a bit of an explanation of what Scala is? Yeah, so Scala is a screen design tool. So it's it's software design for cust- usually for custom user interfaces and icon design. So it's for native applications for iOS, Android websites, anything anything that's w- would normally have pixels as output. So um we we're, we're obviously taking more of a, a modern approach. I feel like the the current tools we have miss out on on some of the things that are that are needed and and haven't necessarily solved the problem as elegantly as as they could have. And that's interesting because there's been a lot of, uh, not really a lot, but kind of a a a series of um, of new tools that are trying to take over that sort of space. Um, I think first there was like Pixelmator, and then there's been Sketch, um, which has been particularly popular. Um, Macaw has been one that's is that's on its way out. That's specific to doing web stuff. Is there something that you feel like these these tools aren't necessarily providing that that Scala is going to be better at? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess um, at this point, as as you know, we've only said a, a little bit on the the website, and we've we've we can actually have given a little bit more information than we thought we would before we we had a beta, but it's taken it's take it's taking us longer than we thought as well. So we thought we'd give a little bit of information, get it out there, and then keep working. Um, I, I think. So Pixelmator and Acorn, I, I see as image editors, and I don't think they're even—they're not even really gunning for the the crown of, of software design tool. And I and mm. it, well, if if they are, I think they're taking the completely wrong approach. But I don't think they're even aiming at that anyway. I think they're trying to be image and photo editors and um, you know general image manipulation tools. And I think they they do a great job of that. And and I you know obviously they're depending on what you need, um, those might be more than enough and and really nice. Cocoa Mac applications to use if you if you can't afford or don't want Photoshop, um, and and certainly there's some other tools. I mean, Macor is is very very squarely aimed at at web development and and quite different to to Scala. Um, I've I've had a, a play with Macor. I, I I bought it. I think it's fantastic. I'll I'll definitely use it and probably use it in conjunction with Scala. Mm. So 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 in answer to your question, no, I, I obviously we've been working on this a while and I been keeping a pretty close eye on what everyone else is doing and I, I i don't think anyone's taking the approach that we're taking i think what we're doing is is quite different which which will be i think will be positive and and also potentially a, maybe a little bit of a, a shock because it's really not like anything out there i guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see what the reaction is mm. it's actually really exciting you're making me you know Really impatient to be able to get my hands on a couple. So what we've done is we, um, without actually giving any features or, or, or discussing any specific specific things, we we kind of obviously anyone who's read um, the Bajango articles kind of knows my stance on a lot of things, and um, certainly kept strong opinions as, as we've been building Scala, but we've. I've, Given that we don't have any legacy, we don't have any documents we need to support. We don't have any workflows we need to support. We don't have any scripts that are being built to run in Scala or anything like that. We we have a completely clean slate, and we can obviously predict um, or try and try and predict where the the entire market is going. Obviously, mobile is is massive, and and handling 
different pixel densities and design needing to be more elastic is certainly something and 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 also design being more tied to 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 software being being um you know a machine that has to run rather than just being lots of still pictures so we've we kept all that in mind and we kind of every single feature we've um we've really tried to think it through as, as deeply as possible for if, if if nothing else because we we can't actually have many parallel methods for doing certain things we actually have to try and find one that that is that is the best method possible and and that's it because we we can't we can't afford to implement three different things that that work similarly we just have to build it once which sounds really nice i mean one of the things i find so unwieldy about things like photoshop i guess is that it's it's a tool that is designed to meet many, many different needs. And as such, there's multiple ways of achieving similar outcomes. And I, as a complete novice, find it really hard to figure out which way I should be using, uh, you know, for my particular use case. So having a tool that's specific for software design. Um, and I can't think of many others that, that where it's, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of image editors out there, um, but there aren't that many tools that are, Focus. I think Fireworks kind of was in a way that I hadn't seen other apps, like in the sense that um, it was geared around creating a kind of a library of resources that knew that they had different states and that knew that they could be reused in different contexts and you could either edit one instance or all of them and things like that. But I, I don't know of anything else that is similar to that. Yeah, I think fireworks was kind of you know God rest its soul. Uh, <laughs> it was a uh, it it was as close to like a a web image editor that as as anything that we had um, previously, and I, I guess um, tools like Sketch and stuff like that have tried to fill its shoes, but not not quite in the same way. I guess they can't. They're all kind of a little bit different, really. They are. Fireworks mm. was definitely the right tool. It's just a shame that it languished for so long and it really needed a... I mean, it's it's a shame Adobe didn't just keep the name, <laughs> go into Xcode, file, new project, um, and, yeah. and, and, and and do it in the same way that Apple did with, um, with you know, Mac OS 9 and, and OS 10, just start again and then, then worry about some kind of classic environment to, to open old fireworks documents and pass them and kind of make it work or um yeah it's it's a real shame and that it's, it was quite strange hearing that hearing the end of fireworks as we were in the middle of scala i mean if anything i, I guess it kind of reinforced that we're mm. probably probably building the right tool i guess we'll have to wait and see what people think hey here's a question for you um in you know as a way of gauging how well it's all going are you using scala to design scala yeah. at the <laughs> no <laughs> we're not at that point yet i mean that the the other thing is this and this is this is another reason why it's taken so long because it's such a it's such a huge project and we we have obviously minimum viable product is is considered to be a thing in the the startup world and everyone tries to push an early 1.0 at the door and 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 that's that's great if you're building something where that is acceptable but i think in our case we um our, our minimum viable 1.0 must contain so many different features and there's just so many different things that I, I I just I desperately need because we are building a professional tool that has to be professional from day one. We're not we're not mm. trying to we're not trying to build something that can be used for part of the job and then ramp up. We're actually just 
trying to get it day one. That's it. That's what that's what you use from now on. Um, so in answer to your question, no, not not yet. Um, I <laughs> you probably notice some happy tweets when when that day comes, but yeah, not not yet. Oh well, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep uh, eagle eye on yes. the Twitter stream. Indeed. Actually, this is a kind of going back a little, backwards a little bit because um, we meant you mentioned before that um, you know you've, you're having to make a lot of kind of decisions about you know this is the way that you do things with Scala, um, and I think that's something that kind of comes across in pretty much all of your apps, um, that all the apps that you guys have created in that like they're all very opinionated and they all have a specific. Uh, specific way that they work, but even more so, they have a very specific kind of design sense. Is that something that you feel is important to your your apps? Um, is it important to not just like the Bajango brand, but you know the use of your apps in general? I think we usually just have a feeling on what we think is right, and it doesn't mean it is right, but it's what we think is right. And I, um, I, th- I, I think it helps when. We're definitely. I mean, Scala. I'm. I mean, I'm happy to say this. I'm. I'm incredibly selfish for working on it because this is the thing that I want, and and therefore it needs needs to work the way that I want. And that the other the other aspect of that is, um, we haven't yet, as as has been mentioned, we're, I'm not building Scala in Scala yet. Um, so a lot a lot of the workflows haven't been perfectly tested, but it's it's what i've had in my head is this this is the way i really 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 want to work and i can't right now um and i think a lot of our, our apps are like that they're just if there's there's a way we want something to work usually that's because we think the way that existed before that was was broken hmm. and so so therefore it's not it's not necessarily that we're trying to be opinionated it's more just that there is uh, there was a problem with the way things were and and therefore, you know, here's here's how it has to be, and and that's that's been the goal and the motivation right from the from the from the very start. So it's it's not something that's baked in later. Am I right in thinking that Bajango began? You guys started off doing widgets. Yeah, yeah, course? that was it. So okay, um, so around about two thousand and five, uh, my my background, as as you were saying, you were doing finished art and prepress. Um, that's sort of my background as well as retouching and some other stuff. So it was all ad agency work, and um. I kind of figured that this, the, you know, the web wasn't going away. And years ago, I, I started all of this stuff, um, you know, code design music um, on an Amiga. And that's sort of where I fell in love with all three of them and couldn't really make up my mind. Um, and so getting back to software felt like a really natural thing. And I wanted to just be better at building websites and, and ended up teaming up with um with a with a friend on building widgets and that's how we got started and the widgets just became more and more complex and we needed to make them you know use use more and more cocoa code and cocoa plugins in the widgets because we just couldn't do what we wanted to do with html and css and then we ended up breaking out of dashboard and ended up making some mac apps and then that was kind of it you know then i think the iphone came along and we'd we'd just been mac and ios developers since yeah, cool. So, I mean, you've, you've, I guess, sort of traversed a great arc of technology then from sort of, yeah, the early days of Mac OS with widgets through to Mac apps and now mobile stuff. Have you, can you kind of see where it's all going next? What's, what's going to be the next great platform? Are you guys going to be doing Apple TV stuff? Apple TV would be cool. I, I, I guess 
the so the widget thing obviously um no sane person would be developing widgets today if if they wanted to see them succeed does anyone use them anymore it can't, they kind of were cool right like uh, when they first came out i also uh did a little bit of widget development um and i thought it was fantastic this i guess they were the the um you know early ancestors of apps right like these kind of little packages of content functionality design that were easy to discover, download, and then get to. Yeah, and you can you can see Apple's take on that. They initially uh, remember we were supposed to be building web apps for for iOS for the iPhone. Yeah, I do and remember that. Yeah, so obviously there was there was a lot of parallels there, and the I still remember the um, the keynote for the the iPhone announcement and. The, the weather app looked like the weather widget in OS X looked almost identical. So mm. that was certainly for us, it was when we saw that, we were like, hey, we, we know how these things work. Um, that looks like what we've been making. So therefore, yeah, I, I, you know, we, that's why we sort of jumped on the iPhone quite early. Um, in terms of where it's going, I mean, obviously mobile, anyone who's been following Asimco and Horace Deju's take on all this stuff and a few other guys, Benedict Evans and, um, Clearly, mobile is the new mainstream, and it will be that way for possibly decades. And it's only going to expand from here. And that there may also be quite a lot of devices that don't necessarily have screens, but but connect up to to mobile devices and and do other things, just sensors. And uh, you guys have probably seen the LifeX lights and um, you know Nike Fuel Band, as well as the um, I've got a Fitbit, and there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff like that, and they're they still are running software, or even though there may not necessarily be a user interface, certainly not a user interface on the on the the actual hardware, but there might be a user interface on a mobile device. So I think that's that trend's just going to keep going, and mobile's going to keep being bigger and bigger. And I I think the real question is, and the the biggest unknown is what professionals will be using in ten years time, fifteen years time. What kind of transformation is the Mac going to take? And what will be Xcode in 15 years' time? What will be Photoshop in 15 years' time? What will be Logic, Final Cut Pro? I, I don't think they're necessarily going to be on an iPad that looks like an iPad today. Yeah, I think these are these are really good questions. And um, I guess I'd extend that, you know, some of, some of my work is with enterprise clients as well. And what's the enterprise going to be using? Because at the moment, they're still using like Windows PCs, desktop, software you know what's uh word processing and spreadsheets and and all of that going to be right. in 10 15 years it time? is because it's fascinating it's it's going to change you know it's going to change the there's there's just it's there's too much pulling people towards mobile it's it it, it has so many advantages and there's mm. there's there's some really i mean even just the fact that um none of the apple laptops have um you know lte in them all, all of a sudden, there's there's an iPad that is in on many axes far worse than a laptop. If you're trying to get certain tasks done, um, but but I, I guess the point is, sometimes it just doesn't matter. It's it's you know the the best camera is mm. the one you have with you. The best the best computer might be the one you have with you, which is which is your phone rather than your laptop. But it, it yeah, it does get quite blurry for for professional and enterprise and situations where people may have setups on a desk and i that's i i honestly don't know we're, we're trying to be as as agile as possible so we don't sort of get blindsided <laughs> by that one yeah 
I think I think the rate of change in the last, you know, as you mentioned, um, Horace Deji before, I, I find it amazing the sort of history of computing talk that he's done where you look at just over, I guess, our lifetimes, the computing platforms have changed, you know, quite substantially. But the biggest amount of change has been sort of since 2007, um, that in the sort of prehistory before 2007, there was quite a proliferation of desktop computing platforms and then there were the big two sort of duking it out. Um, and then the mobile sort of uh, landscape has, has just completely sort of overtaken uh, traditional desktop and laptop computing in, in just a few short years comparatively. Yeah, it, it's kind of scary how quickly it's it's happened and um, how quickly it's set to continue changing. I don't know if you guys have been listening to ATP for the last couple of weeks, but John Syracuse has a, an interesting take on that that uh, might be interesting to listen to. I, I have listened to it and I, I certainly have my own opinion on that. And I actually, I, I, I definitely agree with John. And I, and I think the really a lot of these things are dictated by, by two main factors and they are screen size and input. I think the real question isn't, and, and people conflate this, and I, I think it's, you've got to be very careful when, when discussing it. Hardware keyboards, it kind of doesn't really matter here or there because you can have a hardware keyboard with, well, you can have a hardware keyboard with iOS devices, but if there was a, a fixed large screen um, draftsperson's table, there, there could be, or, or there doesn't have to be, but there could or couldn't be a hardware keyboard, that wouldn't matter. The real discussion comes around, I think, the operating system and whether it's mouse or multi-touch. Um, and, and I think... If I, if I had to place a bet, I, I'd say that the, the mouse's days are numbered. I think the hardware keyboard is, is likely to outlive it. Just because I, I can imagine working on a um, large screen, multi-touch display with, with two hands. The same way they... Did you, did you guys ever see the, the Jeff Han TED Talk from 2006 before the iPhone came out? He was standing at a, a glass draftsperson style display that was backlit using multi-touch with all fingers. So two hands, 10 fingers on the screen, completely amazing. And what we ended up with out of that was a, um, was, was phones with multi-touch, which, you know, obviously in their own right, completely amazing. But I, I still, I still sometimes watch that, that video and think that's, that's really, surely that's got to be where we're heading. And I, and I don't see that a, a device being driven by a mouse can compete. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, what, what John Syracuse has said on the most recent ATP about, um, you know, potentially we just needed to think in terms of a new paradigm that there could be a multi-touch interface that is actually more productive for writing code than a physical keyboard is today. We don't, it doesn't necessarily need to be a soft keyboard that replaces the physical keyboard. And I think, um, Brett Victor's yes. sort of work mm, that he does. Absolutely. He's a good example of that where he's completely, rethinking about how you would use multi-touch to sort of provide inputs to a, a sort of programming environment. Um, yeah, I, I certainly agree. I think that the computers of the future are going to be more like iOS devices and less like a sort of traditional desktop or laptop computers. Um, and I, I think it's completely unav- unavoidable. Like that, that future cannot be resisted because the gap between um, the convenience of, of something like iOS and a traditional desktop computer is already so huge, you know, just, and it's not just multi-touch. It's, it's all sorts of things that have happened. As you mentioned before, the devices having, um, so many sensors in them, so many, um, you know, different ways of networking technologies built in, um, and assumed to be there by default, the battery life being so much better, 
um, the device itself just being so much more responsive. Um, there's only so much you can actually modify sort of a, a desktop computing operating system to, to try and pick up those traits. Whereas I think what, what Apple's done in iOS was able to sort of start again with some new assumptions. Um, and then from there, the result is a device that's just, yeah, so much more useful on, on so many different fronts. And yep, I agree. Like, um, it isn't yet as good at writing reams of text or source code. Um, but I, I just can't see, you know, in 10 or 15 years that, that sort of the traditional computers we use today will still be around in any huge numbers. Actually, again, I'm going to point out an, another, another, uh, thing that I've, I've listened to recently. I listened to a talk like, uh, maybe last year, some point, um, I can't remember his name, but, um, there was a dude who, uh, gave a talk about how he, um, because he had like, he ended up with, uh, is it RSI or OOS or something now? Um, he, like he basically couldn't use his hands and as a programmer, like that's like a huge part of what you do. And so he came up with this method of, um, of programming by voice. Have either of you, uh, have any of you heard? heard that talk no i haven't but sounds no. sounds pretty interesting i'll um i'll put the link in the show notes for everybody i'll have to find it again um, but yeah he basically came up with this idea that like he he could program just by using his voice and so he has a microphone like a special microphone and he uses um i think dragon um that, that that's sweet to you know actually take the the vocal cues and then he's written his own stuff to kind of take it's almost a different language and he, you know, he uses kind of vocal guttural sounds to, uh, to you know, do things like, to do things like, um, you know, parentheses and brackets and you know, uh, all that sort of stuff. And um, it's it's actually really interesting. He gives a, he gives a demonstration of how he does it during the talk because, well, I mean, it's all vocal, so it's it's very easy to do. So, um, I'll throw the link in the show notes. Wow, that sounds fascinating. But I think it's one of those things, right? Because, you know, at the moment, our our interface to the computer is basically limited to uh, our two hands and these two input devices that are somewhat abstract. And I I can kind of see that eventually, and at some point, probably not in the too distant future, I could see it going in such a way that we're interacting with computers on a different level to what with just than just our two hands. Like, why is it that we can't use you know we can't use more you know inputs than that? Like you know our vocal uh, your vocal capabilities and that's that sort of thing. Um, that makes a lot more sense than just you know being limited to you know the idea that we you know you have to have a hard a hardware keyboard, which is completely and utterly abstract. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although even I'd say even an iPad doesn't really take advantage of of two handed multi touch input, um, right? In the same way that a forty inch multi touch display could, um, of course. And that's, and, I mean, that's just size. And, and certainly, yeah, exactly. That, that's purely all it is. It's just just size. And um, even I mean, a mouse is just obviously amazing when it when it was first invented and and has served us incredibly well. But having said that, you've got this tiny little car on your desk that you have to drive around to to control the pointer to to get somewhere. And it's, um, I mean, this is, I guess, one of the one of the big differences in in multi-touch des- software design versus um, designing for for a desktop is is um, the proximity and placement of, of UI becomes quite different for for desktop to to mobile. And um, on on desktop, it's it's 
more about fits law and about distance traveled and, and size of hit target. And, and and that stuff can be absolutely critical. And I mean, in, we're talking about Scala, even Scala, I've designed that in such a way that the the amount of mouse movement from 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 canvas to to stuff you have to do is is hopefully as short as possible and you can kind of move stuff around so you don't have to travel long distances on a big display whereas multi-touch it's more about um uh you know placing things you know the, the bottom of the screen is quite important because that's if you're tapping things on the bottom of the screen you're not um covering content with with your hand you know if you're tapping stuff mm. on the top so, so all, all, all this stuff is, I think we've got a long, long way to go, even with multi-touch and even with, with two-handed multi-touch on large displays, even before we worry about that other stuff. But yeah, and I, com- I completely agree. There's probably other ways. I don't necessarily see natural language as being anything anything but fairly niche or or even it's more of a secondary type sure. input. Whereas, so you could be doing something with your hands while you're telling the computer to do something else. I could see that happening, so it's it is more of an assistant like like Siri and like Google now, rather than mm. rather than being the the primary input. I still see our hands are quite good at that, but hey, who knows? I mean, I I don't know what else you could do. I guess um, depending on how creepy you want to get, obviously reading um, where you're looking could provide context as well as as other other kind of body language. So that's been done, right, isn't it? Wasn't there a Samsung phone that would pause a video when you looked away from the screen? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there's been research into a lot of this stuff and there are products. I mean, that, that Samsung, I don't know how well it worked. I've never used it, but I've certainly seen the ad where they described that, which, and there's there's obviously, uh, isn't, I think the latest Google device, Nexus 5, I think is always listening or the motor. There's, there's definitely Android devices that are listing the whole time for commands i believe the xbox one is supposed to be be like that where it's always listening so that you can tell it to turn on yeah which you know depending on people's comfort level that may or may not be a good thing yeah (laughs) absolutely they're always listening anyway aren't they probably always listening do do you put tape over your your camera (laughs) just turn it around the other way right cover it with Something. What's, what's on the top? Know. It's on the top of my display. How can I do that? <laughs> I can't see the screen if I turn <laughs> around the other way. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It, it adds another challenge to the game. There you go. Someone yeah. needs to kickstart a project where they've they they make clips that do something else, look cool. I don't know what they do, but they also co- they also cover the camera. Yeah. So it's rather than actually having to put sticky tape or something, it's something that just that looks like it belongs there rather than. I feel like I saw a um somebody who did a light like that. Yeah, I don't know. That's really off topic. That would be cool. I think that's probably about it. So, Mark, if uh, people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? I, I'm Mark Edwards on Twitter. That's Mark with a C, Mark on app.net or bajango.com for all of our articles and bits and pieces. Yeah, and we'll we'll throw links to the sh- in the show notes for all of that sort of stuff as well if um, if that's how you prefer to get your get the details. Um, the show notes I should mention are on our website. That's mobilecouch.co forward slash 25. And you go there, that'll have all the links for all the things that we mentioned. Uh, now if you would like to get in touch with, uh, myself, Jake and Ben, uh, you can do that by jumping onto our website as well. It's mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. And uh, yeah, you can you can fill out a form and that'll send us an email. Now, before I go on and tell you each individual person's 
contact details. I should mention because this episode is actually two days before uh, before the final closing date for our t-shirt pre-orders. And uh, if you guys are interested, there are t-shirts that are available uh, online for you to pre-order. We need to have 25 um, within, I think, before this Thursday to, uh, to for those to go out. So, Guys, if you want to if you want to support the show, then you should go to uh, you should go to the website for that as well. The link for that will be in the show notes uh, for you to get there because it's too long for me to say it out loud. It's just it'll take me hours. Now, if you would like to get in touch with any of us individually, Jake is J McMullen J M A C M U L L I N on Twitter, not app.net. Ben is at Ben Trengrove, B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E, also just on Twitter. And I am Jelly Bean Soup on Twitter and Jelly on app.net. That's it. Thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mark. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And, and we'll see everybody in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye. Bye.